Welcome to the Anderson Business Advisors Podcast, the nationally recognized preferred provider for asset protection and tax planning in the nation. This show is for real estate investors looking to protect their assets, save on taxes, and build their wealth with Clint Coons. Clint is an attorney, author, avid real estate investor, and featured instructor at Anderson's tax and asset protection events held throughout the country. Enjoy the show. Hey, welcome everyone. It's Clint Coons with Anderson Business Advisors. And in this episode, I want to talk about something that is really different than what we normally discuss when it comes to investing and, and, and working with individuals. And it's always about houses, multifamily. But the one thing I've never touched on before is raw land investing. And here's what got me really interested in this. So I decided to buy a boat. And, you know, I'm over 50 now, so I'm going to get a boat. So I got a small boat. And the issue that came up this year is after the summer, is like, what the hell do you do with it? Where do you, where do you put it? Because I don't have the room in my driveway or my house or garage to put a boat. So then I started scrambling around trying to find some place to, to park this boat and pay someone. And I thought, wouldn't it be great if I could just find some land somewhere and build an actual storage shed. Because one of the other things that my, my wife's been pressing me on is she wants to get an RV eventually and, and, and travel around a bit. And so that's something else you got to store. And so I start going out there looking for land. And it's tough to find raw land because especially right now in this market, there's so many people out there, developers that are scrambling, trying to buy property to build houses. It's where do you find those niches so you can find the riches there by getting in front of people and, and, and scooping this up. And I don't see a lot of people talking about it until I came across Seth Williams at RE Tipster. And you know, we, I had him on before and we talked about writing blind offers. And if you guys listen to that, or if you didn't listen to it, go back and listen to it. There's some great strategies there, tips for you as far as how to find motivated sellers. But he talked a lot about land and it just really piqued my interest. And I thought we got to get him back. We got to do a segment just on raw land investing. So he agreed to do a segment on that. So here we go. Seth, how you doing? Hey, Clint. Good to be here again. All Good. right. So we're back here talking about raw land. Uh, you know, after we, we cut that last segment, I was just, it really motivated me to want to delve into this. And I know we haven't had a lot of time to talk about it, in general, but what I've seen on your site and what you've been telling me, this is really your expertise, is it not? Yeah, it is. This is what I've spent most of my time doing as a real estate investor. All right. So, so real estate investors, you know, always go to the properties. What made you to say, yeah, I'm going to go for raw land. I mean, there had to be some point in your investing career when you realized land's probably the better way to go. Yeah. What? That's a very common thing. When people hear land, it's just like, a lot of blank stares, like people don't get it. Like, I don't get it. How does that make money? Where's the cash flow? That kind of thing. And I had those same thoughts uh, until I found that apparently you can buy land for very, 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 very cheap, like crazy cheap. And finding deals on land is quite a bit easier than finding deals on houses. And the reason it works is because the way I make offers on vacant land properties, say if there's a property with 10,000 bucks, for example, my offer is going to be a small fraction of that, maybe a thousand, maybe 2000 bucks, depending on how confident I am about that property's value, but it's going to be very cheap. And because it's so cheap, it's very easy to pay all cash. I never have to take out loans for this stuff. It's just vacant land. So like liability is pretty low. 
things are not going to blow up on me. There's no tenants there. Nothing breaks down or gets destroyed. Property taxes are super cheap. And for a lot of reasons, it's just uh, it's a much lower risk type of investment. Not risk-free, but when you compare it with houses and other improved properties, it's just really easy to work with. And this is something that actually took me a few years to realize, but it's actually a lot easier to buy vacant land properties remotely, like in a whole other state that you've never even been to before. It's fairly easy to do that, do that with land because there's so many tools out there. Google Earth, uh, DataTree, I mean, county websites, you can find local inspectors to go check out your land for you. And with houses, you can do that too, but there's like more variables involved. You know, you got, you got to get into the property. You can't just look at it from the road. All kinds of things that could be have problems with them. Whereas again, with land, it's just dirt. So like, it's not that complicated. Well, I mean, you you make it seem like it's simple, but it's just like anything, you know, I can find some swampland in Florida yeah, and I get it for a thousand bucks and it's never going to be worth more than a thousand bucks and nobody wants it. So, you know, how do you determine investing in land, what's worth buying and what's not worth buying? I mean, there's got to be some parameters you've yeah. developed. Yeah, absolutely. I'm glad you're bringing that up because uh, vacant land, it is simple, but it is not easy. And there's there's not uh, it's not a wrinkle-free process. And there's some things about vacant land that can be a big issue that you don't even have to think about with a house, like what you just said there, uh, wetlands or you know, is the property on a cliff or is it zoned right in the first place? Or are there any restrictions on what I can build here? What are the setbacks, all this stuff with a house or a building, like these questions have already been answered. So you don't have to think about them, but with land, there's a lot of, uh, a lot of question marks that have to be addressed. And I've actually got a blog post that outlines 15 of the most common problem areas that come up. And there's probably even more beyond that, but Depending on the geographic location where you're buying land, most of these don't need to be worried about, but there's always a few sort of hot button issues that you really need to look into. For example, if you're in Florida, wetlands is definitely one of those or flood zones or a lot of states on the East Coast can have water issues, just things that West Coast properties don't have quite as much of. Like, for example, if you're buying you know, land in the middle of New Mexico, you don't have to worry about wetlands. That's just not a thing there. So kind of have to understand the state or the county where you're working and what issues are most likely to come up and uh, other issues that can affect certain types of properties, but not others. So like if you're going, going after commercial properties, environmental due diligence is a pretty big deal. It's not such a big deal with residential properties. So you sort of whittle it down once you understand the geographic location, the property type, and that kind of thing. But there's a lot of things that it's funny. I'm actually, I'm buying a uh, pretty big vacant lot right now. And my intent with this property is to develop it myself. And I'm seeing firsthand just how much money you can spend on doing this due diligence before you buy a property. I'm probably going to be spending close to 15,000 bucks just doing, just doing research on it, like not even paying for the thing. <laughs> and, uh, Things like geotechnical investigations and topographic surveys, and I don't need phase to go two environmental study. Yeah, exactly. I got a phase one going on right now, so like you can absolutely spend a fortune on this stuff, and sometimes that's well warranted if you have huge plans for it and tons of money is hanging in the balance. But when you're going after a smaller residential lot that's worth say ten or twenty or even fifty thousand bucks, a lot of this stuff, and again, especially if you're paying 
you know, 20% of market value for it. A lot of this stuff is, uh, you know, you can get most of the information you need without spending a fortune. For example, a survey. Most lenders, most attorneys will say you need to get a survey. And in a lot of cases, that may be true. But again, if you're paying, you know, a couple thousand bucks for a property, a GIS parcel map, it's not guaranteed to be accurate. Sometimes there's issues with them, but it'll get you most of the way there. I mean, it's a, it's a fairly educated look at where the property is, what the dimensions are, things like that. You can usually look at the GIS maps from more than one source. And ultimately, if you don't really get the answer, it is some risk you're taking on. But historically, it's been, for me personally, it's been very, very, very rare that those GIS maps have been just wildly inaccurate. So where um, do you find those? Yeah. So data tree is one place, you know, data tree is not free. So that would be the reason I say data tree is because there's lots of things you can do with it. Everything from pulling lists to property research, to even finding like title documents and that kind of thing. If you're looking for a free option, most counties have a GIS parcel mapping system. If you know how to Google for it and find it. And it's just like open to the public. You know, if you have the property's parcel address or, or a parcel number or property address, or even the owner's name, you can find it. It's usually overlaid on some kind of satellite maps. You can see where it is. The idea is just to verify like, yep, it's there. I understand the dimensions. And when you, when it comes time to sell a property like this, you know, there's different disclosures. You can, you can have your buyer sign so that they understand like, hey, it's up to them to get a survey. Like this is all from the GIS system and it's subject to flaws now and then. But uh, the point being like, you can spend a fortune on due diligence and research, but usually you can get most of the way there. Not 100% accurate, but accuracy, but most of it just through the free resources available online. So if I wanted to start investing in land, then how, do, how does one get started? And you know, what do you... What do you look for? I mean, what is the criteria? Because I wouldn't even know how to, other than just being local in my area, you kind of have some semblance, but can you give some tips on, on what someone should do if they wanted to, to go down this road? Yeah, well, it sort of starts with figuring out what uh, market you want to work in. Mm -hmm. And what a lot of people will do, and this is what I did, is they'll just start looking for land near where they live, like in their own state. And uh, that can work. I don't want to say that's like, a problem, but not every state is created equal in terms of like the desirability of land. I spent my first three years or so exclusively buying land deals in Michigan, where I live. And Michigan is one of those like in-between states. It's like, it's okay, but it's not amazing. And I found that I was uh, just kind of sitting on properties for a long time. And when I say a long time, I mean like maybe six to nine months for these things to sell. And uh, I wanted them to sell faster and they, they wouldn't, I would just sit on them until things, you know, a buyer came along and there are other States out there where maybe the weather is nicer. Maybe there's more tourism there. Maybe the tax laws are more favorable or there's job growth. People are just flocking to certain States over others. And uh, you know, that's generally a good sign for a real estate investor. That's kind of what you want to see. So some States, just make it a lot easier. Or even like state laws, like if you do get into seller financing, and that's kind of a whole other subject attached to land. But if you are uh, selling properties with owner financing, some states will make it fairly easy to foreclose and get your property back. And other states are judicial foreclosure states where you have to go through court and it takes more time and it takes money. And it's just, 
it's not quite as seamless to make it happen. And just understanding like, is this state going to make life easy for me? Is it going to make, make life hard? Well, and that's I, a different area though. So what you're talking about is, I don't think people are going to make that connection. Why you would even, you know, what the seller financing is. And just to put a finer point on it, I believe what I hear you saying is that if you buy a piece of land, then you're going to sell it to a developer. Somebody's going to build on it. And the issue that a lot of developers have is, you know, financing and things like that. So you're going to sell to them on seller financing, right? So they could develop it and then pay you off when it's sold. That's one option. But a lot of times what, what you can do is sell, sell the property to a retail end buyer, somebody who wants to okay, yep. build their own house there and offer seller financing to them. And, Got it. Yeah. Yeah. And, and seller financing, when it comes to land, the reason that's significant is because with vacant land properties, unless you have an immediate plan to develop that property or make money from it in some way, most banks want nothing to do with that because <laughs> vacant land as a collateral item is kind of hard to verify the value of it. Even a lot of appraisers don't really understand how to value land because a lot of the data you need to uh, value it just isn't there. So because of that, a lot of banks like financing that is not an option on the table. And that means that if a land buyer wants to buy land and just kind of sit on it, they need to have the cash to do that. Or you as a land investor can offer them seller financing. And you know if you're following this model and if you're buying it for almost nothing in the first place, that's actually a pretty viable thing you could do because on the down payment you get from them, you could pretty much get most, if not all of the money you need to pay yourself back just in the down payment or shortly thereafter. And then for months or years after that, every payment you get is pure profit. You've already got all your money back and you don't have a mortgage on it in the first place. So sell the financing. The downside of it, or there's like a, a few downsides, is that first of all, you don't get all your profit back until years into the future. So it's kind of a slow drip. And sell financing laws vary quite a bit from state to state. And even the type of loan instrument you're supposed to use and what is said in those loan instruments can get, I mean, it's just different. It's not, there's not a clear cut template that works everywhere. Um, Get an attorney and let them draft it up for you. Exactly. Yeah. I mean, I think anytime you go, you start doing seller financing in a new state, definitely get an attorney. And I think like, you know, the textbook advice is to always get an attorney every time, but just like at least the first time, make sure you're getting somebody who knows what they're doing to to get that thing with all the right language in there. And there's also the the payment collection. You know, you have to have an efficient way to get collect payments, preferably on autopilot. And if a person stops paying, you have to understand what now, how do I get my money or how do I get my property back? And all this stuff you don't have to think about if you're just selling properties cash. It's very simple that way. But at the same coin, when you're using seller financing, you can usually charge a higher price. You can charge interest. And if you do want a more passive stream of income, it brings that, that to the table as well. Whereas with cash deals, your revenue tends to be a little bit more spiky in nature because just huge influxes of cash rather than this slow trickle from a bunch of different properties. Okay. So to find the, the raw land that you want to buy, we talked about that in the blind offer segment. If somebody's listening in, watching this, they should go back and watch, listen to that. So you're sending out blind offers and using a company like DataTree to find and identify what you want. And then once you have the parameters in there, you're just sending out the same old blind offer letters to these individuals? Yeah, for the most part. And it's in terms of 
like who are you sending these to mm-hmm. and how do you price your blind offers? Again, that's kind of a separate segment, but whenever you get into a new market, there's certain unique attributes of each one. And, you know, in Datatree or whatever data service you're using, it's about figuring out how do I narrow this list down so that it's only people in a certain county or maybe even certain zip codes with property sizes and, you know, that, I don't know, say five to 20 acres or whatever, whatever parameters you want. And a nice thing about Datatree is that uh, it gives you a lot of different ways you can filter these lists down. You could say you only want the people, the property owners who do not live in the same county or don't live in the same state. And you can specify the zoning type and other attributes and that kind of thing. And really, the more specific you can get about it, the better off you're going to be. It's also going to make your list smaller and smaller and smaller, but it's kind of what you want. You don't necessarily want to just like send out gobs and gobs of mail to everybody who isn't going to do business with you. You want to you know, send it to the, the people who are most likely to be motivated or have exactly what you want. And it's ultimately a, kind of a numbers game. And with direct mail, there's really no way to escape waste that's going to happen where you'll send mm-hmm. lots of mail to people who don't want to do a deal. But depending on the type of mail you're sending out, it's more scalable and you don't have to spend tons and tons of your time talking to these people. You can sort of let the direct mail do its thing. And if you're saying the right thing and delivering the right message with the right kind of offer, people will respond and raise their hand when they want to sell their property to you. Yeah. So this seems to me like it's more of a strategy for your local market that buying remotely land is so much different than, as you stated, buying a house. Because the house, all the work's been done, you know what you get. Whereas with raw land, if I was buying raw land in Michigan, hey, how am I to know where I should be looking? What what are the typical issues associated with raw land in that area that I should be on the lookout for? Because, you know, I've seen stuff come up before, as I was talking about earlier in the segment, where I'm looking to buy some property to build some storage. And you see this thing, you're like, wow, this is, this could be a great deal. And then you go out and you, you look at the property, you're like, hell, there's a friggin' pit in the middle of it that you're going to need to fill yeah. uh, just to get it up to level grades. So you can actually put something there. Yeah. And they've got wetlands issues on, on a portion of it. And then you have, you know, access issues as well that you have to deal with. And so then it's going to take a developer, someone that's really wants that type of deal and knows how to maximize a profit to sell it. So how are you able to do that in a different state? Well, I do think some states are actually a little bit simpler than others. Uh, like, think, like name them. I'm sorry. Yeah. Well, New Mexico, for example, right. I, for, for the longest time, I didn't understand why so many land investors were working in New Mexico or really just the Southwestern US in general. But Mm -hmm. I think a lot of what that has to do with is that when you get these states with just like huge areas of desert land and there's just like, you know, 40 acres square, just parcel after parcel after parcel. The nice thing about that is that it's, it's easier to understand. Like it's just flat, it's desert. There's not a whole lot of complexity to it. When you get into states like Michigan, for example, it's uh, there's a lot more variables. Like there's uh, different, a lot more different sizes. They don't like fit into these nice cookie cutter rows, and um, wetlands can be an issue. And also, like the more the closer you get to a densely populated area, the more like different restrictions, and zoning issues, and oversight is required. And uh, that's one of the things you just have to be aware of. So, like for example, when I started in Michigan. I think you're right. I mean, I I was aware of a lot of this stuff. I kind of understood my own home base and I sort of knew what to watch out for. 
But, you know, if I was going to start doing this in Florida or whatever, I would basically just spend, spend a bit of time trying to understand what's going on there. Like, what do I need to watch out for? And part of that, I think, reveals itself when you just start doing it. Like, you'll start getting calls back from people and you start researching properties and realizing, oh, okay, that's an issue I need to watch out for here. And, uh, you know, when you sort of commit to one or two different states and get pretty intimately familiar with how things work there, you get a lot smarter about what you need to watch out for. If you're trying to do this at like in like all 50 states at the same time, it's going to be very, very hard to do that. You're totally going to miss things. And that's why I think it's usually smart to like pick a state or two and try to understand those areas first before you branch out. Okay. So, so the idea then with, with buying the raw land, if I'm going to invest in it, I'm investing in this to sell to a homeowner, somebody wants to build a house on it or possibly a developer. Yeah, possibly. Mm-hmm. yeah. So then how do you go about once you've acquired the property, how are you marketing it? Yeah. Well, there's three big outlets that I've used for a long time. Uh, and this is what a lot of land investors use. It's Facebook Marketplace, Craigslist, and Zillow for sale by owner. They're all free and they all get exposure to a lot of eyeballs and they'll kind of check different boxes. You know, there's people looking on Zillow who won't look on Facebook and vice versa. And same thing with Craigslist. It is an option to actually pay for your listings on a website like Landwatch or Land and Farm or something like that. I've tried that and I haven't had a ton of success with it, but I know there's some people that swear by it. And I think the benefit of those audiences is that they're very targeted. Like that's why everybody is there is to look specifically for land. But, uh, you know, there's obviously the cost associated with it too. So I think what it comes down to is if you have a good deal, like a good property that is desirable and usable for one solid purpose, maybe multiple purposes, it's not that hard to find a buyer. Like it will always sell eventually. It's kind of a matter of, can you get exposure? Are you asking a price that makes it really compelling? If you're offering seller financing, that will usually help itself faster, but it's not a requirement. It just means you're sort of limiting the pool of buyers who can buy from you. So right now, where are you investing in raw land looking? Yeah, I've been looking in uh, California as of late. And, really? Um, yeah, and I've currently got a deal like right in the county where I live, which is it's kind of a different... I wasn't even following the direct mail approach. I literally found a thing on the MLS of all places, which I never thought I would do. But interesting thing about that one, the reason it's still a compelling deal is because I'm actually planning to do something with it, which is rare. Usually I'm just buying land and doing nothing and selling it again. But this is a much more involved, long-term sort of buy and hold project. Got it. So how about last year during COVID, where were you buying? During COVID, so I had some stuff going on in Washington and Colorado. And those were kind of the two, the two states where I was doing the most. What part of Washington? Benton County. Or is, is that in the eastern side? I think it is. Yeah. Yeah. It's actually a uh, interesting thing about, which we haven't even gotten into, but I have a buying website where people organically find my website and they submit their properties for me so that I can make a cash offer to them. So it's like no direct mails involved with this at all. It's kind of a totally different stream, but I've just been able to build up some kind of organic following over the years. And the cool thing is these leads come in like for free. I don't pay anything for them. But the bad news is, and I guess another good thing is that I've got an automated offer thing where when people submit their property, one of the questions I ask is, what do you think the market value is? And they put in a number, whatever that number is, whether it's accurate or not, 
my website will turn around and send them an automated email with an offer for 9% of what that number was. That's and awesome. uh, a lot of people say no, as you can imagine, but occasionally people say yes. And that's actually how this, uh, how some of the stuff in Benton County happened. But the downside of getting leads this way is that I don't get to choose where they come from. Like they just mm-hmm. happen randomly. And that means I need to like learn a lot more about every market every time I start going down these roads with people. And um, I don't know, it's kind of a pain. It's, it's the drawback that wouldn't be there if I was doing direct mail and targeting a county or state because I could really commit to that state and understand it and know where my leads were coming from. So kind of pros and cons to it. So is there a particular type of seller or owner that people should focus on that you found from doing this over the years? It seems to pay off better as far as getting a deal done. Yeah. I mean, some commonalities that I see a lot are people who have inherited their property. That's a pretty normal thing. Or people who live out of state or even just out of the county. Like they don't, they don't see the property on a regular basis. It's kind of out of sight, out of mind. The delinquent tax list, we talked a little bit about that in our other conversation. That can be an effective way to do it. Uh, there's some annoyances about that approach. The list is usually kind of hard to get and it's usually a mess to sort through, but it has a very good response rate. Like people have a problem and you can solve it. And anyway, so that's another way to do it. But really ultimately what it boils down to is once you have one or two or three of these common boxes checked in terms of the specific people you're looking for, it's just doing volume and sending out lots of mail. So. And just wait for them to respond back. And so, yeah, they should go back and listen to that blind offer discussion we have about putting those agreements together, what yeah. should be in there, how to uh, get those people to, to commit to say yes. Yeah. And then we've touched on this, but again, when you've written this offer, you said you're, you're going pretty darn low on them, it mm-hmm. sounds like. And that number is, you know, you heard you say what, 10, 20, 30% of what you think it's maybe worth? Yeah. That's always my approach. And I've always stayed pretty conservative, Uh, Mm -hmm. like 30% for me, I'll do it, but it's pretty rare that I'll go that high. Usually it's that 10 to 20% range. I've talked to other people who are working in markets that are a little bit more competitive, like Florida and Texas, I know are getting more competitive and they're making blind offers of like sometimes 40, maybe even 50%, which like, I don't think I'll ever do that much. That's just too much for me. But, but some people are doing that. And I think what makes that okay in their situation is that they're going after properties that are much bigger. So like, even though it's a higher percentage, there's still a lot more money on the line to be made. And they're also pretty high demand markets where like lots of people are going there, like land is in super high demand. It's not going to be hard to sell those. So that rule may be made to be broken, but I usually don't go there, but I've, I have heard of people who have done it and been okay. So what do you think is better going after smaller parcels of land or larger? I think it depends where you are. I think if you're just getting started and you're trying to figure out how this business works, it's probably better to go with the smaller stuff because there's a lot more of those smaller deals to go around. Like they're pretty easy to find for the most part. And if you make a mistake, it's not going to be a very painful mistake. It's something you can very easily recover from and you'll learn a ton of those. But if you're somebody who's trying to like waste the minimum amount of time, like me, for example, and if you have enough experience to, you know, you, you get it, like you don't need to learn anymore. You sort of understand how the business works. Then I think bigger deals are probably just a better use of your time in general. But the downside with those is that they're, they're harder to come by. Like those are the kinds where you have to send out a lot more mail to get them and be willing to offer a higher percentage for them. So if I was getting started in, in land investing, how much 
would I need, let's say, to, to be able to put deals together, would you say, on average, if someone is considering investing in raw land? Obviously, the more you have, the better. But I think a healthy number to have would be like 5000 bucks. Personally, I had 3000 and that was enough for me to go very, very slow and really not make a whole lot of errors and get my first and second and third deal and build up a bigger cash reserve. But 5000 will sort of give you a little bit more buffer to like, again, going after the super cheap stuff. I'm not, talk, not talking about big deals yet, but it'll give you enough to like cut your teeth on some direct mail and find some deals and just sort of see the process work. Like see, see yourself make money on the process and figure out, okay, this is what I have to watch out for. And this is what's hard. And it's a lot of learning you can do with that. So what was your worst mistake that you've ever made in doing this? Yeah, I mean, the worst, the worst deal I ever did was I bought a tiny triangular parcel for like 327 bucks. And I found out like months after I owned the thing that I was looking at the wrong parcel the whole time. There was another one that was also the same shape on the other side of the highway. And I was looking at the map upside down this whole time. <laughs> so, uh, yeah. And I basically, what I did was I, the parcel was useless. Like he couldn't do anything with it. And so I sent a letter to the neighboring property owner and just said, Hey, do you want this land? I'll give it to you for free. And I just gave him a quick claim deed and we were done. Right, so, wow. But, uh, well, you know, if I had taken out a $50,000 loan on a house and screwed something up, that would, it would be harder to recover from than 327 bucks. Yeah. I mean, I, I see opportunities for individuals that, that would just, that want to start investing in real estate and they don't have a lot of cash to get started. I mean, you know, you said 5,000 and I hate to tell people to ever do this, but it's not a lot. I mean, let's say you went out there, you got a no interest year credit card, you take a cash advance against it. If they won't charge you on the cash advance, if you could take out $3,000, do a deal. And let's assume that it takes you nine months, like you mentioned in the past to sell that property. And then you bring back in, you know, eight, 10, $15,000. Yeah. That's a great way to get started. Yeah. I think just when you look at the math of that, that totally makes sense. I think where people might get stung is if they're the type who like gets bored or you know, yep. demotivated and they're like, ah, I don't want to do it anymore. And now they're in the hole, 3000 bucks or something. But, but yeah, I mean, if you stuck to it, yeah, they could totally work. Yeah. And that's the thing about real estate investing is that you have to stick to it and yeah. uh, put in the effort. And I see a lot of investors that get, they want to be, invest, they want to get started in real estate, but they just don't want to put in the time and the effort. And even we're talking about land here. I haven't heard you say it's easy that you don't have to do any work. So, Correct. well, great. Uh, now on your site, retipster.com. You mentioned that you had a blog post and I'm going to put that in the show notes, but is there anything else on there that people should be paying attention to if they go to your site that would, if they want to learn more about investing in raw land? We've got a ton of stuff and I'm not exaggerating. I've spent years, thousands and thousands of hours putting together world-class, like better than most courses you'll find out there, free stuff about all this. And there's a couple of key blog posts that I reference a lot that sort of link out to a lot of other stuff on the site. One of them, it's actually just the URL, landflippinglifecycle.com. That'll take you to one blog post. Another one is uh, it's called The Truth About Land Investing. It's 15 warning signs to watch for when buying vacant land. That's the one I mentioned earlier about like due diligence stuff just to be aware of. And there's a really a whole category on the site dedicated to just land stuff. 
if you go to the homepage and scroll down uh, a ways, you'll see a few categories. If you just click on land, you'll find a bunch of stuff there. Great. Yeah. Send me those links and I'll get them posted in the show notes. And then, you know, everyone is watching this, be sure to check it out. If you're thinking about investing in raw land, Seth's been doing it for, for going on 12 years now, 13 years. And so you're going to be learning from someone who is actually doing the deals. And I think that's so important with real estate investing. You learn from people who are actually still investors, not people who used to invest, you know, 10, 15 years ago. Anything you want to leave in parting, Seth? No, I think we kind of covered all the basics. Um, it's, it's a great business. I, I think part of what drew me to it and part of what made my wife okay with it, because my wife is very, she doesn't like me doing a lot of this stuff, but the fact that it was comparatively low risk, like I didn't have to take out loans. I didn't have to like do stuff I didn't know how to do, deal with contractors or tenants. Like it's again, simple, but not easy. So it takes plenty of work, but like a lot of the complexity just wasn't there. And she, it's been a great business from that standpoint. Just, uh, yeah. So I, I think if somebody out there has maybe thought about real estate in the past, or maybe they've tried it and gotten burned on other types of uh, investing strategies, it's a pretty good one to cut your teeth on and, and learn more about the business. Well, hey, thanks for taking the time again to talk about this interesting subject. I wish you the very best. All right. Thanks, Clint. All right. Bye-bye. See ya. Thank you for listening to today's podcast. Show notes for links to everything mentioned in this episode can be found on our website at andersonadvisors.com slash podcast. Be sure you subscribe to our podcast. And if you are already a subscriber, please provide us a review of what you thought of this episode. 